Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Anthony Harry Moffat. He is a recently retired veteran of the Australian Defence Force, where he served for nearly 30 years. Most of that time is spent in the Special Air Service Regiment, more commonly known as the SAS. During his time, he completed 11 active service deployments, amassing nearly 1,000 days of special operations globally, which includes being seriously wounded in action and repatriated to Australia for treatment. Harry finished his time with the SAS as its Director of High Performance, while also establishing the Wanderers Education Program, which funds education of selected SAS operators to broaden their worldview and better prepare them for life after the Army. As a side note, Harry is also the lead singer and songwriter for the rock band, The Externals. Since leaving the Army, Harry has become a registered psychologist and runs a human performance consultancy, working with sports teams, the military and industry. He is also the Asia-Pacific Director for the Mission Critical Team Institute. And if that's not enough, Harry recently authored his memoir, 11 Bats, which is a book about his military service and his love of cricket. Harry, it's an absolute pleasure to host you on a podcast. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, no worries, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Hey, I just uh, I just finished your book, 11 Bats. Uh, and, mate, I must admit it was an absolutely impressive read. It's a pretty sizable book, but I finished it in five days, one of which was Anzac Day. So I think that uh, gives you an indication of uh, the pace of the book and how captivating it was. Congratulations, mate. It was a, it was a great effort. Thanks, mate. Yeah, I've had some um, some sleepless nights around writing it and uh, and releasing it as well. But I absolutely loved uh, loved uh, the process of of writing. You know, originally, I I didn't mean to turn it into a book. I've been a mad journaler ever since high school, and it's just a, a kind of composite, I guess, of a lot of journals I've written over my time. So um, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and thanks for the kind feedback. No, it's absolutely, and, and I, judging by the feedback that I'm seeing on social media, I'm certainly not the only one that's had that experience. So, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a really excellent. Uh, before we delve into some of the components of the book, which we certainly will cover, maybe we can go back to the basics. Uh, you've spent nearly 30 years in the Army, most of that uh, in the SAS. Where did this passion for the Army come from in young Harry? Uh, you know, what drove you to enlist in the first place? Yeah, I guess I always had a sense of uh, of service, you know, community and national service. My my mother was a nurse, and my father was a, a sailor. So, and and I have a lot of military in my background, dating back to the 1700s, and um, and great 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 grandfather David in the Royal Marines. So, um, yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of history and a lot of DNA there. I would say an intergenerational influence, but I guess at 12 years old. I was exposed to 22 SAS on the front page of the newspaper and on the headlines of, of, of black, what was black and white television back in those days. The images you know, burned onto my brain of, of the SAS, you know, blowing into uh, or breaking into the Iranian embassy at Princess Gate in London in 1980 and that was really was an inflection point for me and it set about a whole bunch of things including uh, a deep desire to find out more about special forces and and wondering if I had the the metal to to um to have a go at selection but it also set about a lot of reading I think I can 
probably put the origins of my interest in academic pursuits there. So it was a really powerful moment in my life. And around that time, I also met a man called Martin Studdart by the name of Martin Studdart. He was a, a captain in the SAS, and I, I didn't even know Australia had an SAS at that stage. So a, around that time, there's a, a few things kind of conflated to add to my, I suppose, life position to join the military. And as, and as soon as I could, I was off. Uh, I, I kind of dropped out of university, finished year 12, was going to do architectural psychology at uni, but um, kind of left that by the way and joined on my 18th birthday, literally. That's interesting. Architectural psychology. Can't say I've ever Yeah, I was back myself as a bit of a drawer. I really enjoyed uh, you know, tech drawing, whatever it was at school. So it was in the background. Yeah, I, I, I had a I had a sense early that you know, education was super important, and I, you know, not that it runs in my family at all, but uh, but I had other things to do, other, other fish to fry. Yeah, first right, because of course you then uh, kind of uh, double back onto psychology uh, many years later, uh, and I guess the technical component of it also makes sense, uh, or the architectural. It's all very technical and precise. Just if, if I'm understanding service in the SAS correctly, it is very precise. It is very surgical, uh, or at least that's what it's uh, uh, designed to be. Yeah, and it is very technical, mate. You're right to allude to that. And I, it was something I didn't expect. Once you finish selection, you go into the reinforcement cycle and some of the courses and training that you do there are highly technical, uh, probably beyond what people appreciate. I, I sit back, I, I'm involved still with the, the regimental low level and um, at the outskirts of training etc and was recently back there and some of the training they're doing now I mean I wonder how I could could do it you know they uh, it's it's uh, with you know, everything from basic surgery through to you know high level computing courses and language etc it's pretty intense yeah absolutely and I mean that's that's also the uh, the lure of the uh, SAS uh, suspect uh, to be at the forefront uh, of military technology, but also of the military uh, or the art of war, so to speak. And I guess that that would have dr uh, drawn you to it. What was the, uh, and you talk about this in your book extensively, the first few years as an operator, as a qualified operator, uh, I think for you, they were quite busy initially. Is that right? Yeah, very tough, mate. I, um, you know, you train for a couple of years to get to the point where you, you, you're on selection. And then there's that, as I said, that kind of couple of years or 18 months after that you intense training and courses, et cetera. And then you hit the troops. And I, I hit the troop at you know, 21 years old and very young. And I, I struggled a bit, to be honest. I, you know, there was these, I remember walking into a boxing ring or, or kind of makeshift boxing ring and, you know, looking across the, the other side and there's this, you know, growing man around 40 years old or so he appeared bearded toothless spitting you know probably weighed a dollar 10 like 110 kilos six foot six and he just walked up and knocked me out essentially <laughs> and uh, i was still i've still got a missing tooth in the back of my mouth and when i woke up he was kind of standing over me and spitting you know welcome to the real game you effing blinding see what you know and that was a real wake-up call and so i i really I kind of met the standards, but I really had to work super, super hard more than others to meet the standards. And a non-infantry background too. So culturally, uh, you're on the out, outer a little. I came from Signals Corps. So, you know, I, I felt you know, that I was always sprinting you know, flat out uh, to keep up. 
but it look it forged me as a, as a human as as a man and i think I've, I've absolutely benefited from that period yeah of course and i think uh, again you make that point in your book as a signaler you uh it certainly wasn't where you wanted to go but uh, you had showed the right aptitude for it and uh, i think it uh, paid back uh, the certainly the typing skills certainly uh, paid back <laughs> that's right and writing the book and look we, we did morse code and and radio theory back in those days so that grounding gave me a great start inside the teams so I got I was you know one of the first picked for a lot of teams because of those skills so that gave me great insight and and great buy-in um, into the into the teams which was yeah, a good start in the of course, and 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 you know, not being the uh, the character that stood out, certainly not six foot six, you know, and one hundred and ten kg, uh, probably That's also right. helped out as well. Being the uh, being the grey man, what were your early deployments like? So I think your was your first deployment was to Afghanistan, and it was uh, it was the hunt for Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden post nine uh, eleven. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So you know, the nineties were characterised by. We spent just as much time away, but it was mostly training and exercises. We spent time overseas with coalition partners and, and whatnot, but we, we just didn't quite get a gig during those years. You know, trip to Somalia, a couple of golf trips, etc. but they weren't, um, certainly weren't combat operations. But, um, yeah, the first one was after September 11. I was actually in England at the time when that kicked off and uh, travelled back to Perth. And, yeah, from September 11 onwards or from 2001 onwards, it was just a revolving door of operations. And the first one was into Afghanistan. We were the first on the ground working under Operation Enduring Freedom. We were closely aligned with the US and the UK special forces there and operating out on the border. And in a lot of ways, it was probably the hardest tour or or deployment that I've done because we did a lot of foot patrols on the border working with the US and they are the hardest nights of your life. There's no doubt about it. 70-odd kilo. Well, I was carrying around a 60-kilo pack, but uh, a couple of the big guys got up to close to 70-kilo packs, which is, it, it's, it's, it's dumb, <laughs> is what it is. But we, we didn't, you don't have much choice when you've got to live in the hills for 10 or more days. So they were some seriously heavy nights of walking precariously on the sides of along the sides of mountains to get to positions that we could observe and you know the work then was very focused very purposeful uh, the mission was get Osama bin Laden and that's a powerful vision for any soldier to have uh, and the strategy was pretty clear you know kick al-qaeda and the extreme elements of the Taliban and, and, and Osama bin Laden sympathizers i suppose because they're quite factional uh, it's not you know, it's quite complex uh, enemy um, ecosystem kick them out of the country uh, which we did you know for all intents and purposes they, they uh, we, we removed their freedom of movement uh, moved a great deal of those fighters back across the border into the federated areas of northern pakistan and you, we felt as if we we're you know i suppose winning the war uh, that's that's how it felt and then iraq came along and that I think, you know, derailed things. And when we returned, obviously, in 2005, it was the Taliban and Al-Qaeda had, um, you know, partnered up, I guess, and uh, and it was a much harder and a much different prospect. Mm. Yeah, and that's, a, that's probably something I want to touch on because I think you're making the point that uh, in the first couple of years of Afghanistan, the vision or the strategy was very clear. We knew what we were getting ourselves into and we knew what had to be done. And the mission was rather clear. And as you 
put so eloquently, you went in there and you did a job and you knew what job you were doing. But that arguably changed a few years later. In your view, what, what, what actually changed? Because arguably the strategy was, some might say, the same, right? So, so, so what actually changed? What was, what was different? Yeah, yeah, look, for, for Australia, I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, but the, you know, the, the whole nature of the deployment in you know, 2001 through to three, the enemy was easily, more easily distinguishable. The villagers and a lot of the locals were probably more aligned to the coalition than they were to al-Qaeda and, and the more extreme elements, and the government was probably more stable Although it's, you can, I don't think historically you can say Afghanistan's had a, a, a stable government for a long time. But and there was, yeah, there was a sense of winning and doing good. There's, there's, that, that I can say safely say that was the characterisation of our time there. But yeah, we're running away to Iraq, which you know concerned us from the start because there was you know, a little bit of deception around the deployments and whatnot from all all parties in the coalition side. And a lot of negotiations with world bodies, etc. But I think I think when we went back to Afghanistan in 2005, Australia had taken over. We were then under is Operation Slipper, I think. And the I suppose the vision or the strategy wasn't as well. It was it was clear. It was to you know secure Orisgan and uh, establish a reconstruction task force to help build hospitals and schools, which the Australians did with excellence to a, to a very high level. However, as a ground force and as a fighting force, the SAS, we were the first on the ground. We were a little bit concerned about the fact that we led with engineers and a reconstruction task force rather than an infantry force to secure ground and fight an enemy that was in Oruzgan. I mean, the, the government, I think, and again, this is hindsight here, so I always want to qualify that. And I'm, I'm not comfortable often commenting you know, with, a, with a hindsight view. But at the time, I think the government was looking for a safe place to contribute to the coalition effort, you know, minimise casualties from a, a political media perspective and, uh, and just get about, you know, getting some early wins on the board, as I said, with hospitals and schools, but unknown to or unbeknown to the government, to us, Orisgan and Tarankau was a bit of a nexus uh, of the Taliban highways that move across or as they were known. So it, it was a, a facilitation point for the movement of people and drugs and guns and money and, and information. Any number of uh, IED facilitators moved through there to the Helmand province between the borders and the Helmand province. And it was also between Kandahar and Kabul. So, you know, these highways were frequented by high-level commanders. So it was busy. <laughs> we, we, were, we were busy from, um, you know, from 2005 onwards. I think someone did an estimation I read somewhere recently that over eight or nine years, there was a, an average of three or four contacts a week eight or nine years for, for um, you know, infantry and special forces. So, you know, if, again, hindsight, I don't think it was as quiet a, uh, a place as the government was hoping for it to be. And, and again, you know, I think the hope, the lesson that we learn out of this is that we should always lead with our infantry. We should always lead with our frontline forces, our combat 
certain, you know, service roles, no matter where we go, they're, they're trained for hearts and minds and they're trained for, for combat. And I think that's, that's the ultimate safety we can bring to our own force. Uh, I found it interesting that, uh, you know, you made the point that the enemy wasn't as distinguishable in the, in the later years. And I think you also made the uh, point in the book that the, the locals hated you and the Taliban equally uh, over, the, uh, over the years. Why was that? Because that strikes me as a particularly nuanced and, and insightful comment that you know I highlighted in your book, uh, and it goes to this very point. I think that we're talking about here now is that you know we're talking about strategy, and it was uh, the enemy was easy to identify, or easier maybe to identify in the in the initial years, but later on it was very hard to distinguish uh, who the enemy was. You know, have, it, yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. It's super complex. And I guess one of the reasons the, that Afghanistan is renowned as the graveyard of empires is because each empire, including our own, stroll in thinking they're going to change it for the better. Uh, as a country, you know, the Durand line is an arbitrary line placed by a British officer or, or politician back in the days. And it goes straight through a number of language groups and that goes to the point that there's dozens, hundreds of different language groups. They have blood feuds going back thousands of years and we failed, I think, to acknowledge that. We didn't. We certainly didn't. We were well read back in 2002 and three about you know, the areas we worked in and, and you know, when we got to Orizgan, we were quite aware that somewhere like Gizab had a different relationship with Afghanistan and its surrounding provinces that than 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 Helmand did or, or the Norisgarn or Tarankout did. So they, these complexities played out in front of us, and we 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 started to understand that some provinces welcomed the coalition U.S. or Australian forces. Some some didn't welcome the U.S. but welcomed the Australians, and others didn't want us a bar of us, and we're on side we're sided with the Taliban extreme. Um, to the Taliban or Al Qaeda, and you know other factions, ISIS were, were were in the mix as well, and so it just made for a very complex environment in which to work. Which we were, I think, one of the one of the one of the skills that we brought, or one of the the, the, the keen abilities we had, was to understand this nuance with the different language groups. And it was then you overlay that with different motivations. Again, these blood feuds between villages or, or language groups or, or tribes, if, if I can use a clumsy term, um, monetary and financial motivation. You know, you've got the UK burning down marijuana crops over here. So they're pissed off because that's the only way they can make money. In another village, the Taliban have had a rogue commander who's come down and killed a bunch of people. So they hate the Taliban. They So, so it's just super, super complex, Maz. And I think by, by the time... You know, by probably 2008, you know, after a few years and a few rotations that we'd been there, we was really starting to understand that. And uh, that's good for us in operating. We know we can kind of predict, have a, have a certain amount of predictability when we move into certain areas. But it's also bad because we knew that this is just a, a, a such a complex environment. We're probably never going to, to win this. So I think there was a sense of inevitability about, you know, that we were probably just there for the adventure more more than the the more than the impact at times yeah and i think again that's a really 
that's music to my ears because one of the one of the things that I do now in defense, uh, I co-facilitate a course on conflict analysis with uh, Dr. Mike Martin, who's uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he uh, wrote his PhD studying Helmand. He was a former British uh, Army officer that the Army funded uh, his research, and he published a book uh, later on about. Uh, about his findings, and that's one of the critical ones that has since led to the future work that he's done. That you know, we ultimately didn't understand the human terrain, or you know, and I'll use the word you used previously, ecosystem, because it's exactly what it is. This place is alive. It is not as black and white uh, as we'd like to paint it. And that was one of the that's one of the things that I'm co-facilitating now, and, and some of the things we talk about is very much the first the social architecture, uh, the background that exists in an environment that we come into. Now, I was, uh, as we talked about off air, I mean, I was in Humint. So when I was uh, in Afghanistan, we again contributed, I think, uh, perhaps poorly to understanding that picture because much like, at least, and I'm glad to hear that you guys looked at it differently, but certainly from big army that I was exposed to and the people that I was briefing and, you know, including senior leaders, the picture was always very black and white. You know, anybody shooting at us was a bad guy and let's slap the Talib, uh, Taliban uh, ascribe the Taliban label to that person. But then, like you're saying now, when we scratch below the surface, there are far greater motivations, whether there might be, uh, you know, allegiances to clan groups, whether there might be economic, uh, because, you know, it is, and, and uh, you know, well, I'm now reading research on families where, you know, they had one son uh, in the police, one son uh, in the Taliban, uh, and one son, you know, growing poppy. Uh, and they're all, right. uh, you know, they're all part of that family's ecosystem to ensure that, A, the poppies will get through the military checkpoints, uh, you know, through the Taliban and so on and so forth. So it's a far more complex beast. Well, it's a, yeah. It's Sorry, a, uh, no, no, so I think that complex adaptive systems theory has a lot to offer us here, even if a simplistic mind model of, um, of how these things work. You know, I, I do a lot of work with culture in business and, and other uh, teams now and trying to have other people understand there's no linear approach to this. If it's got humans involved, forget about linearity, uh, just forget about it. Leave the room if that's how you want to bring, because uh, I think that's you've got to think about it as a, as, as a set of complex adaptive systems. You know, and, you know, there's a large part of the, uh, I think, and from what I read, I, I agree with the people who might comment, there's a large part of, uh, Islamic extremism, which is a blanket term we use for the for, for our enemy, so called, um, which I, I think it's a limiting uh, you know, a, a limiting label to put on it. But there's a large part of that that enemy for uh, enemy combatants who don't care about us or don't care about the US. It's a it's a side product. It's just an, a distraction to the bigger issues that they have, and they are complex too. Within whether it's within Islam or within you know, kind of ideology more broadly. So, you know, I used to look at the Syrian conflict and think, you know, that a lot of what's going up there in northern Iraq, they, they couldn't give a stuff about Australia and what we're doing. You know, it's, they just see us as a, as, a, as a distraction, you know, just get, it, just get out of the way. We've got other things to do. So I think we, we, your, your comment about um, some of, sometimes um, the senior leadership can get, a bit too conventional in their thinking and try to put things and reduce things back to black and white. We really need to raise our eyes. And I think this is where you know, special operations in our DNA and in our training is this kind of hearts and minds, complex adaptive systems, inter interrogating networks. We, we kind of understand that and it's how we 
we, we enjoy the chaos that comes with complex adaptive systems, not, uh, not, not the complicated kind of mechanistic or linear type of systems that we can be pulled into in a conventional military sense. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I'll just uh, pull a thread there. Uh, you reminded me of a quote when you mentioned culture, because that's a that's that's very much my my field as well. From a colleague who I've worked with in Sweden, uh, his quote is uh, "Cultures don't meet, people do," and I think that speaks to that very point. You know, we get so carried away with you know the Hofstadters, the Trumpenars, and so on that very much cast cultures in a one-dimensional frame. You know, all Afghani are like this. You know, Chinese are like this. Uh, you know, Indians are like this. Uh, but ultimately, we're all people who are, we all have the same desires, the, all, the, the same innate urges. How they manifest in our ecosystem, again, to use that word, is heavily influenced by culture and the upbringing and the, uh, and the cultural programming that we are exposed to from a young age and that we are adjusted to. And that, that's what we call culture. But the emotions we feel and, uh, are the same. And if we, can, if we can connect to the human behind that cultural programming, uh, that's when we start understanding and realizing, hold on, the motivations behind what we do and why we do it between myself and that person are usually uh, usually very similar. Uh, but that's a, I think that's a really uh, interesting point, Matt, and I'm so happy to hear uh, someone with your background bringing that to the table. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, and, and that that is how the regiment considers battle space uh, because it certainly hasn't been in my uh, limited exposure to special operations uh, who I've supported closely in Afghanistan, but I think this might go to your next to a next point that you bring up quite loudly uh, in your book, and that's that the mission changed, or that perhaps the operator changed, or that the profile of your missions changed into a far more conventional kill or capture mission profile. Which I think is that you know I was in Afghanistan 2010-11, so I think by that stage, it well and truly changed. What do you think brought that change on? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And again, you know, I want to preamble this with this. This is all hindsight. So, Of course. But just to say on that, it's important. To, and I think and I agree it's hindsight. And I, I, I'm standing here as someone saying the same thing as well. I, I, I played my role in that quote unquote shit fight. While mm. I sleep easy at night, right, I, I fought for my decisions to where I thought best. I think it's really important that we unpack this for yeah, definitely. We're going forward, right? So, so I appreciate that, it, and I agree. Benefit of hindsight is uh, is also a dangerous thing. But uh, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, I was just going to say that, it, that, that we definitely did have our roles or impact. I would say shrunk over time. Was shrunk over time, and it was reduced to you know, as you correctly say, kill capture targeting, and it was you know driven by a few things from my point of view I think it was highly successful uh, we were taking high level Taliban and and other what they call it ACM anti-coalition hierarchy off the battlefield uh, we were clearing and securing villages and taking explosives and weaponry off the battlefield and we were really disrupting communications lines and that flow had flown effects into Helmand and other places you know ultimately they, they found other ways around and bypassed but I think it was just a comfortable, easy uh, capability to, to 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 wind up and deploy up and down the chain. You know, it was easy for commanders to get lots of numbers back to Canberra. There's no doubt about that. We know that there was reporting back, and these numbers were of huge interest at a political level. And and why wouldn't they be? That's kind of what they they do. They count numbers and and report happily up and down. It was also uh, comfortable for us. I think at at times. In the uh, in the later 
parts of the Afghan campaign, a lot of my colleagues and a lot of our junior command uh, were very comfortable with just doing direct action tasks. It was sexy. It was, again, we were dominant. We, we were rarely challenged in the field against some of these, you know, some, some pretty ragtime enemy at times, it's got to be said, compared to the, 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 uh, the capability that we brought. And it was, you know, I guess we, we moved away. One of the lamentable things for me is we moved away from our core business of surveillance and reconnaissance, but we also became comfortable in kind of the short hit, short duration hit. When we are in our DNA, long duration, long patrol times, and I saw a shift in, in our operators, but I don't blame them for it. Uh, but I They're a product a of the environment, right? Exactly. Ultimately, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I would see. I, I talked about it in the book. I would come out. I think. I, I think this. Uh, you know, probably deployment nine or something like that. Two thousand, probably two thousand ten, eleven, around that time. Walking out into the compound, you know, I, I'd be up at three, four in the morning with other team commanders going through the packs and seeing who might pop for the day and night, and doing our work. And you'd walk out at six in the morning for a brew, and there'd be guys coming out of out of the gyms and you know, nicely manicured beards and uh, wearing all the latest kit. And I, you know, I used, to, used to think there's a faint waft of bloody, you know, uh, complacency getting around. But at the time, you kind of think, well, I think, you know, they're, they're good operators. We're, we're doing good work here and kind of get a little past it. But uh, there was, it, it kind of started to feel that way, that we were just this siloed, single, one-trick pony and very, very conventional. And as a result, we had a lot of reach down from from higher. Uh, you know, I had a lot, I personally had a lot of missions turned off or not approved. I was always I was renowned. I was a pain in the ass, Maz, uh, to to anyone above Louis Colonel or so because I was always throwing up. We want to do this funky job and this funky job and that funky job, and it would they, more and more of those were getting knocked back and just stick with um, to stick with the direct action tasks. And look, of course, we are products of our environment. We became elite at it we became excellent at it and um, yeah there were a few challenges daytime operations I don't know what anyone was thinking taking the nighttime away from us and um, and the catch and release policy uh, whether people want to admit it or not was a real issue a, a, a real issue for us what and, do you mean um, uh, so yeah we, we we moved away from capturing bad guys and then passing them on to the US or holding them for long periods of time but if uh, if we if we couldn't get some kind of legal result within, I think it was 24 or 48 hours, might even been 72 hours, they'd release all of the uh, the bad guys back into, or so-called bad guys, alleged bad guys back into into the uh, to the network. There was a bit of a joke going around at one stage. We learned from some people we'd caught, uh, they would say, you know, at least they get a, a, a nice bed and some free food for a while you know and that was a bit of a joke uh and so it, it kind of did get a little farcical in that in that sense i think you know borderline blackadder type of moments you know yeah but that's war that's that's war mate you know it's, it's with all its paradoxes yeah and all the on all the added complexity of uh decision paralysis uh you know that comes with it as to who the bad guy even is. And I think you, you made the point, you know, the image of the bad guy changed, who is the bad guy now? But also I find it very interesting, your point about the SAS being, it was almost like a, like a, the, uh, you know, punishment for performance because you performed the job to a high standard. You were the go-to 
organization, uh, perhaps later on joined by, you know, two commando and so on, uh, as the ones that are going to do the hard yards, arguably job of conventional infantry, but also because that uh, the risk threshold, it's, uh, and, and I'm, you know, I've read about this and people talk about this quite openly, and it's far easier to justify to the public the death of special of special forces, right? Mm. Because, you know, the the understanding within the Australian public is that you guys are doing some really, really crazy stuff, high risk stuff, which it is, of course, mm. but, you know, arguably something that regular infantry could have done as well. Uh, however, it's a lot easier to explain losing special forces soldiers than uh, arguably conventional forces. Yeah, and, and we've long known that. That's not new. I mean, yeah. you know, if you read back over some of the media and commentary around back to Princess Gate in, uh, in 1980 and Desert Storm and, and uh, or Eagle Corps, sorry, uh, was it Eagle Corps? That, um, the US failed US uh, Iranian University, Eagle Corps. I apologise, I think I've got that wrong. But anyway, you go read back over some of the um, the commentary then and reports. It was plain then, you know, that that uh, the government and, and the operators knew that uh, the the popular the population back home will will put up with a few special forces deaths or a lot of special forces deaths because they have a different mindset to to how they approach that that uh, context. Young eighteen year olds coming back in body bags is hard to hard to stomach so yeah it's a pity I think it's 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 the wrong way to make decisions about winning a war or or having an impact in in these types of environments but again you know war the money the politics the interests it's it's a ugly beast and I think anyone who goes into it or tries to reduce it to a good bad black or white is going to end up with a bloody nose or a bruised ego yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and I think bruised ego is the is the re- really powerful uh, term because I think there were certainly a few of those uh, in our echelons. Is that um, uh, and and this is tongue in cheek a little bit, but uh, there's certainly a, a, an echo of uh, a disdain or dislike for officers uh, in your uh, in your book. Uh, in fact, it's not a, there's no echo. In, in some points, you make it very very clear. Where does that come from? Oh, look, I love the tension with officers. Some I always say some of some officers, uh, some of my best mates are officers. So, so I love the tension, and certainly uh, in the in the regiment, that tension's writ large. Uh, you've got a different dynamic. Again, our special operations are a much flatter structure. We probably suffer a little in how we we how we try to fuse conventional military hierarchies into our special operations and I think it does work against us at times. Other units around the world probably deal with it a bit better. Um, for example, we should our officers should be in the you know you just use the regiment and the regiment system for a lot longer than they are. They spend a couple of years and move on and generally you'll have a young captain coming in into a troop full of old crusties like me so it has its inevitable tensions. Uh, in the book, mostly I hope taken as tongue in cheek, that they that there is when you mix special operations with conventional hierarchies, that that tension can be can become problematic. And we've long known. I, you know, I, I love Preston Klein's uh, work in this sphere. He's kind of captures it well in a in a in a um, in a selection paper he did with his PhD, and he talks 
over a few pages about the tension between conventional hierarchies and special operations. And, you know, they resent us because we've got longer hair and wear baseball caps and wear shorts to briefings, but we are selected for our common sense, our, our bravado, I guess, our personality types, our, our ability to not only accept high risk, but to orientate inside of risk. And I think that's, I'll go back to my point about humans who are more comfortable in chaos than maybe others who are comfortable in ambiguity and, and, and lack of information or information austere environments. So if we want the best special ops, I would argue we need to keep a separation. We really do. And it's one of the, that goes back to, you know, one of the problems that we had in, in Taran Cow. For, for us, one of the challenges we faced was that we were continually bleeding out into the conventional army and or military, and I'm not. That's not an indictment on our military. It's the best military in the world, and I love it. But I think when it comes to you know the machinations of of how we deploy forces, uh, we probably went for a blanket solution when we should have been a little bit more thoughtful about it. And that did, you know, on occasion, um, as I say in the book, would have some major or Louis Colonel give us a, a, a tongue lashing for looking. You know, a bit shabby. We've just been out on ops for, for um, you know, 30 days and we were washing our uniforms. All we had was a pair of shorts and thongs and going to the next briefing and you don't really suffer fools lightly in those those contexts. So, And, and look, personality-wise, we don't take a backward step on the battlefield or in the briefing room. So, <laughs> and, and again, that's part of the Larrikin uh, attitude and mentality that the SAS yeah. is uh, well and truly known for. So I think it's part Absolutely. of embodying that identity as well. That's that's part of yeah. it, right? That is part one, of the charm. One of the things we... It is, and one of the, I hope so, because and we don't want to lose that. That one of the one of the one of the biggest and there's a bit of science in this too, Maz, and you know this is that one of the the the, the best resilience building factors or characteristics is the sense of humour, and um, you know, and that has it that operates along a spectrum from a cynical through to a you know a, a joyous or, or a more open type of sense of humour, and I think. That's one thing I love about the unit. It's probably its redeeming feature above all. And, you know, some people don't have the same sense of humour as us, I guess, <laughs> at times. So, but we love everyone. We love everyone. And I, I use we because it's as a community, I'm not with the unit anymore. No, no, of course. No, I understand that. But I, I, I do agree. I mean, sense of humour is absolutely, especially in the dark moments that you guys have been through. And uh, that's that's oftentimes the only valve you have. I mean, my, my old man speaks to this quite a lot. He's, uh, and we haven't talked about this, but he's uh, uh, he was he fought on the Bosnian front lines for three and a half years in, you know, trenches. Uh, and he often talks about this. You know, they used to crack jokes with the enemy, right, who were 20, 30 metres on the other side in trenches. And, you know, that used to make jokes about each other's mothers uh, and so on and so forth. But this was part of the release, uh, but also it built uh, or contributed to building the identity that you're embodying. Uh, and I guess going back to the you know social identity theory talks about this, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, talks about this a lot, right, about how you distinguish yourself from others. And that is uh, some, for, for a unit like SASR would be uh, things like, you know, having the larrikin attitude and the kind of jovial and, uh, you know, getting away with a whole bunch of cheeky things that, uh, you know, the more regular conventional army certainly wouldn't. Uh, and that's 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 certainly uh, part of the charm. And I think it goes again to the point of uh, you making about selection and selecting the right uh, people for the job. Uh, if I can pivot maybe to a, I don't want to say darker, but certainly a more serious part of uh, of 
that job. Uh, and that is one of the things that we certainly don't talk about in the army, at least in the army that I know, is the act of taking a life. Certainly, and that's you know probably because large percentage of army has not fired a shot in anger, myself included, right? Uh, so I've been arguably to war zones, but you know I've never taken a side picture. That wasn't my gig. That wasn't the job I was doing. So you know why should I talk about these sorts of things? But I imagine that's not the case for SAS operators, because right, most of the operators I'd imagine have taken lives. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And and you get asked the question a lot. It's um it's very matter of fact to be honest. There's not much emotion attached to the instant of pulling a trigger or or killing someone. That's pretty in almost every case. It's a quite just what am I saying? A surgical, it, like it, distant, it, yeah. Distant, yeah, it's, and and it's not something that you kind of give any thought to at the time. Whether it's uh, dropping a bomb on a on a on a cave or a building, uh, or whether it's engaging someone at, at five meters or less, uh, and for some hand to hand. So I think that that's probably a different prospect. I've never experienced that, but it's pretty matter of fact. Your training takes over, um, the shots released. Where it kind of hits home is in the aftermath uh, when you do your uh, reorganisation or your you know you, you, you're reporting back and, and taking stock of the situation and the dead bodies then uh, make you stop and pause and reflect. And I think that's where you first have uh, the first emotional pangs of, of potentially what you've done or as a group or an individual or as a team. And then you do reflect on things later on. You need to resolve those. And I, I hope I make the point in the book, and I certainly do now, that uh, it's one area we can get a lot better at is in resolving what, again, Preston Klein calls the residue of extreme experiences. I think that's a really helpful term and a really helpful uh, concept so, you know, taking a life in the instant at the time is pretty matter of fact. I can't speak for everyone, but I think uh, I, I, I would think a lot of people would agree with that. It's probably in the wash up and then further down. I, I've been much more impacted mentally by the death of civilians and non-combatants. So, you know, it's inevitable that the majority of people who die in war are civilians and, and who are impacted, um, you know, even our families and friends back home but um but in terms of people being killed i probably saw that the worst elements of that in iraq where you know civilians were, were always the ones the prominent numbers who were killed in suicide bombings and, and other attacks and also the guards that the poorly lowly paid guards of whether they were security forces local security forces such as the gurkhas or paid contractors from wherever around the world so I think they're the ones that those those traumatic experiences, the hard harder ones to let go of, and the, and the ones that probably dwell a lot a bit more. As for enemy combatants, I can obviously put my hand on my heart here and say I don't really feel much for them. I have a respect for them, I suppose, in a funny way because they're doing what they believe in, and we're doing. But uh, you know, I don't tend to dwell on that as much as um, as as the civilian casualties. Yeah, just going back to that selection piece. How comfortable are you that we are that we know how to select for people who will have that uh, kind of ability to, I guess, separate the act of killing, which is by itself a rather unnatural act at that point in time? Uh, how comfortable are you that we are 
selecting appropriately for that? Oh, very comfortable. I think we do a very good job and you know, things evolve. In 20 years' time, we'll be saying, why do we do that? Just as we are now from 20 years ago. And I'm, I'm deeply involved in selection of the human across a, a number of domains now. And I think, by and large, the I'll speak for Australian Special Forces, we do an excellent job here. We, have, we apply the best psychometrics, uh, the best cognitive testing. We have increasingly strong metrics around our physi- physiological selection criteria. Um, we understand the science a lot more, even down to social factors. Uh, we have that good examination. I think we do a pretty good job, and I would say, in my experience, yeah, I, I think I'm right in saying there's only been, you know, 1,500 odd uh, operators selected in our 70 odd years across the SAS history. I think that um, I would give us, you know, as a psychologist now in, in invested in selection, I, I would give us a, a you know an eight eight and a half nine out of ten scorecard for how we've gone about it, and I think we influence and inspire other selection processes it's it's a it's a it's a more complex thing than i think people give it credit for in special operations you know we require a certain aptitude or iq or that's not iq technically but just for the people listening a certain intelligence level so that that is that's one thing uh, one starting point and also you know obviously a higher physiological standards and they're the first filters so and notwithstanding also self-selection that it takes, you know, someone has to have a certain amount of bravado and, <laughs> and, um, and self-belief uh, spunk and self-belief to, to just turn up. You know, I talk about, you might be familiar with the dark triad as uh, which uh, the dark triad is an examination into uh, Machiavellianism, psychopathy and narcissism. And uh, it's Googleable. get on Google and have a look at the dark triad you know, I've, I, I touch on this in the book and we kind of pulled back a little bit from it in, in, in expanding on it in the book but we didn't want to make it too technical. But I believe that whilst the dark tribe is seen as a negative or a pejorative thing in terms of personality and behaviour, I actually think we need subclinical levels of some of these things to be in special operations. So you do need to be a bit Machiavellian because you've got to come up with some cunning ways to kill or interdict your enemy. Um, you need to be a bit psycho, uh, suffer a little psychopathy. There's no doubt about that. To be able to separate the, the and distance the emotions, you know, you need to be able to get up. Uh, you need to be able to go out and fight the enemy and kill and be exposed to civilian deaths one day. Come home, go to sleep, wake up and do it again, and 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 do that uh, on an ongoing basis. And we also need a little bit of narcissism, uh, subclinical. I, I I reiterate because when you're it's at night. 30,000 feet and you're about to lead 20 men out the back of an aircraft into the hills of Afghanistan uh, on parachute mission, um, you've got to have supreme belief that you're going to pull it off. <laughs> uh, and that's not to mention a whole bunch of other technical things. So I think that the selection thing, I think we do well. I think uh, we're, we're, there's all kinds of people crawling all over it. And, um, and in the Five Eyes community and, and more broadly, that that has huge interest around the world. And, and I think as for, for this time in history and uh, human, human evolution, we do a pretty bloody good job of it. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. And uh, I mean, some might look at that idea of dark triad, while I completely understand it and I, and I agree, for those particular jobs, you have to have those elements. 
but then how do you how do you uh, put the cat back in the bag, so to speak? Uh, you know when when it all goes. Uh, and, and I refer to here to a, to a really really good podcast where you interviewed Dean Peter Baker, uh, and I'll, in fact I'll put a I'll put a link to it uh, in my notes uh, because I think you guys explored that topic a fair bit. And, and I think he used he used a, a, an analogy of uh, of a submarine, uh, right? When you're you know you're inside a team, you're inside a, uh, uh, like like you are inside. Uh, a submarine. You have well-oiled machine. Uh, everybody knows what they're doing, uh, but you're floating inside an open sea, and individual operators might not necessarily realize that they're either drifting off or even which direction they might be going into. And when you kind of superimpose this kind of idea for the dark triad, which is absolutely necessary, how do you then put the kind of barriers on to make make sure that we still remain within an idea of ethical bounds? Because I'd imagine it would be rather hard the more desensitized you become uh, to war, warfare, killing, and so on. Yeah, it's a great point. It goes back to a point I made earlier about where we can be better. And I think I, we, we talk about it at length in that uh, podcast with Dean. And um, we both agree that this is an area to reintroduce back, uh, back to soldiering, and that is this uh, philosophical element aspect to, to human performance, as you may know, as uh, my personal beliefs is that's the fourth pillar of human performance that we've either forgotten about or ignored or, you know, it's been... We were too busy. Made, yeah, yeah, or it's been made, yeah, that, that absolutely. And also it's been made to be seen as fluffy and non-consequential by a, a STEM-biased university system and, and technology-biased uh, society, which is fine. I'm not having a go at those. They're very important. But, you know, who we are and how we think about how we think is kind of being lost. And I think – and, I, and I, uh, my experience with um, SAS operators as well and, and you know, and uh, our, our elite commandos as well who are a, a powerhouse force, you know, world uh, standard force as well – I know it should be true with them as well, are often really deep thinkers. Uh, I've had by far the most engaging, deep discuss, deep um, thinking discussions with my fellow colleagues and I have with any of my civilian mates. You know, no, nothing to discredit the Applecross Cricket Club. My, <laughs> my kind of home away from home. I love those guys. But uh, it's pretty shallow talk of beer and, um, and rock and roll, you know, and cricket, which is brilliant. But I think, I think we do well. I think we do in, inside the realms of the selection. I think we, we, we get people that can reconcile the killing and the job and go home and spend family time. However, the impacts are probably not as well understood as we need to be. Tom Frame and Dean Peter Baker talk about moral injury. We're, we're just starting to kind of pick our way through that. And I think uh, if, we, if we introduce a bias back to this philosophical, moral, ethical part of our aspect of human performance, I think we would be better suited. The other part, and I touch on this in the book too, is how we recover from a, a physical a, a gym workout or a six-month deployment. You know, there's, I think the principles are the same and we probably aren't as good as that yet as we need to be. When I first um, introduced the... The, well, when we first wrote the rewrote the high performance program in SASR, which is still cracking on today and influencing the ADF more broadly, which is great to hear, we it was one of the areas for impact that we we noted straight away. You know, operators would just you know, the more sessions you do a week in the gym, the better. That's the kind of mentality it was, and we almost had a position of uh, saving operators from themselves. 
football clubs have long known this, you know, that, uh, that they need to keep an eye on what they're doing when they're not around and make sure that they're taking time to recover. So recovery becomes a part of the process. And still to this day, I think we can do a lot better with that. And certainly it's one of the things that comes up time and time again when we reflect back on the Afghanistan experience that we didn't do that. We've just seen people time and time again. And, and of course, they'll put their hand up. But uh, that, that's a lesson that will come out of this for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's already coming out. I mean, we're seeing it with the uh, number of suicides amongst the veteran community and so on and the loss of sense of purpose. And perhaps, as you said, uh, you know, moral injury that's uh, perhaps playing a part undoubtedly, uh, I should say, in that as well. You mentioned before when we talked about the, uh, you know, uh, what's the hardest about killing and you mentioned uh, civilians as one key point. And in your book, you talk about this, uh, about the battle damage assessment, but you also talked about this with uh, Dean Peter Baker. You know, battle damage assessment meaning, uh, for those unfamiliar in, in our audience, you know, is, is is basically at which point does it become okay, or what number of civilians or lives lost of the innocent can justify the killing of, say, an insurgent commander? Uh, this is something that back even back in RMC, I had I had uh, personal trouble. Yeah, sorry, you want to jump in? I was going to say it's. I think the term was uh, the the collateral damage estimates, the CDEs. Oh, sorry, yeah, not, of, yeah. of course, sorry, not not BDA. So that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's BDA comes after, right? Uh, that was that's the right. uh, post yeah. Uh, post. Um, yeah. So the the collateral damage estimate. Even back in RMC, I had uh, struggled with this idea that we can weigh up lives of the innocents against the lives of say an insurgent uh, and at which point does it become justifiable and it, all it does really sums up is that not all lives are worth equally right i mean that's really what it comes down to and you make the point with dean peter baker that that was something you struggle with and openly talk about can you talk about that a little bit yeah sure i guess dean and i have a slight bifurcation here quite a slight point of departure we're very dear old friends and uh, so it's not not a quarrel <laughs> But yeah, we healthy uh, debate. Interest, it is. It's excellent, and we both. So he comes from a just war theory or just war tradition perspective, and I come from, I suppose, a lived experience. I, and the point I'll make before explaining that the CDEs, which shouldn't need too much, but is I, I think war is deeply unethical. It, it, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's to be justified, and I think in that statement clearly supports my position, as I would say to Dean. So it, it, you know, from you're coming from a pretty low or high base, or a complete, a long way back um, in terms of talking about ethics and what's right and what's just and what's fair. So that's the first thing I would say. So collateral damage estimates, very short for those who don't know. Uh, Again, you can Google this, it's open source and it's applied liberally across all conflicts, is the a number of civilian casualties you are willing to forego to achieve a target or an outcome. And, you know, for example, in Baghdad, if they were going to hit a high-level Al-Qaeda commander, he was have a meeting in a building and there was a, a, a hospital next door or, or, or an apartment complex next door, they'd drop a big bomb on it and say, okay, we're going to have, uh, we'll, we'll withstand 15 casualties to kill this one guy, 15 civilians casualties. And, and once it achieved that max or that, that cap, they would drop the bomb or, you know, how they want to structure that. So that's a very kind of clumsy or, or broad way to, to look at it. But it's uh, the lawyers are there and in the rooms and they advise generals and decision makers on those things. Yeah, I, I do struggle with that. And I, but, again, I, I draw back to my 
initial statement that I accept that war is a deeply unethical business. It's a, a terrible business. I, I wish there wasn't any, but that's just unrealistic. And that we will always have to deal with those dilemmas. So it's up to the individual and to our organisations to make sure that we're aware that that's going on in people's minds and that's going to have impacts to different people for different reasons and that we ensure that we spend time with them, recovering them, not just physically but psychologically and morally and making sure that they're thinking through these things, that uh, they can reconcile. And this brings back to Peter's position, which is that, you know, all war is justifiable under certain conditions and for depending on the outcomes and whether that's a, you know, utilitarian or deontological perspective, however you want to unpack that. That's, that's for the individual to, to work through. And, but what's, what, what the responsibility is for us is to arm them with the tools and the language and the lexicon and the mental frameworks in which they can reconcile within themselves. So those, those things that they've seen or experienced. And again, back to the agogies of the Greeks where you know, philosophy was one of the foundations of creating a good citizen and therefore a good soldier. I think there's something... The, the ancients scream forward to us from the past still today. Often when I present, I, I compare Harry Moffat in 1916, who was killed in Fromelles on the 18th of July, uh, 1916, and Harry Moffat in 2016. I have two images and I say that you know, there's more technology on Harry Moffat 2016 than on the whole battlefield of, of, uh, of, of 1916. But one thing hasn't changed. And that's the, the values proposition or the, the, the moral and ethical and cognitive kind of space hasn't changed a great deal in that hundred years. And, and I think we've got a bit to learn. Yeah. And war is still ugly. You made a point, again, with Dean, that you wish you had the knowledge now, the training in ethics that you have now, uh, that you have received. You wish you had received that when you were uh, a young soldier starting off. How different do you think you would have been, or, or, or maybe could you have been as effective had you had this much thinking in your mind about war killing ethics of it all? Yeah, brilliant question, mate. And I think this is this for uh, conventional frontline forces would be a, a challenge, knowing where the balance is, because if we, if, if there is a danger that if for those who choose to fight for their country, in what we don't want is people kind of challenging the status quo. There, there comes a point where we need people to fight. So we, we don't want to turn it into a quest to turn people into pacifists or I'm not, not, not saying that's a bad or a good thing, but... Um, but we, we can't have that, right? Something. I mean, that's, that's, a real, that's a real point. We can't have that in a unit like the SAS. Well, certainly not in a unit like the SAS. And again, I'm, I'm pretty confident that our selection processes are rigid enough to pick the right people who can reconcile the two, who can, who can, who can um, you know, visit violence, lethal violence, uh, and go home and have a, a, a Sunday race with their family. But that's not the case for everyone. That's just a fact. And particularly when we need to ramp up quick you know, numbers in you know, what we did in World War One and World War Two. They're probably discussions that that I would push to the reconciliation, kind of you know, moral reconciliation or recovery after the fact. You know, the, 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 I suppose this, this brings out the point that the defence force is not in the business of creating better humans per se. You know, it's in the business of defending the the, the, the nation. So I often can start to sound, or so I'm told, like a bit of, uh, you know, 
too too deeply reading too deeply into it and maybe a little uh, elements of passivism but i'm at the other end of my career now and um and, and seeing what war does however um, i strongly believe that the adf exists to defend the nation and that uh, that means going to war and ultimately visiting lethal violence and, and, and killing so if, uh, if that's, you know, in those formative years of young soldiers' lives, we need to make them aware that they have a greater sense of themselves, that they think about how they think, that they uh, have a philosoph strong philosophical base to their values and to community, but certainly we still want to make them, we want to harden them as, as, as warriors, and I'm not afraid to use that, that term. Mm. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, particularly when we talk about young men, which is by and large the ones that go and do the killing and also do the dying. I mean, we also can't forget the evolutionary reasons behind them doing so and, you know, 20 times more testosterone uh, to go and seek status and a sense of belonging, uh, which is all part of uh, why why this works when it works and why we also can't necessarily hope to infuse all of these ethical dilemmas into young soldiers i'm talking you know in their in their in their kind of early 20s and so on because that's not necessarily what's going to override what's going to override is the sense of adrenaline sense of adventure sense of status sense of group belonging and fighting for your group whether that's your nation or whether that's your tribe or whether that's your local gang it almost becomes irrelevant uh, it is about you know finding your place in the world yeah there's a helpful framework and i think i think it is important to to train in ethical dilemma and ethical decision making absolutely so there's a nice model that i like it's an old one it's the three block model by crew crew lack i think it was and you know because and it's 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 contemporary in its essence because we don't no longer just need to produce soldiers who will go into trench warfare and fight a known identifiable explicitly identifiable um, enemy we are soldiers now in the three block concept need to on the first block fight and kill and die and so combat roles on the second block they need to provide humanitarian aid and and and, um, uh, uh, and support to civilian and engage hearts and minds and the third block they need to employ diplomacy and key leader engagement and intelligence gathering and that's for that's not just for the sas or that's that's for that's the war zone in timor that's the war zone in bosnia that's the war zone in uh, Iraq, so there is a bit more preparation and thinking that can go into that that um, that the philosophical aspects, as I as I like to call it. Uh, so I'm not afraid of 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 that. I just uh, the imperative will always be war fighting. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And and I I've actually discussed this with Dean Peter Baker's colleague Ken O'Driscoll uh, at a previous podcast extensively, and he really comes at it from a just war theory tradition as well, but uh, looking to understand what victory means, and that's. Uh, in his argument is that, uh, and, and I tend to agree that we don't necessarily define victory, which then leads to a lot of these uh, other problems of, you know, mission creep or chasing the idea of, uh, of, of a war uh, as opposed to necessarily a clearly defined uh, vision. And that all kind of cascades down to how we then perform uh, on the ground, but also needing to speak to that very point to our soldiers about, hey, what does victory actually look like? And at which point do we need to pull back or at which point do we need to uh, push harder or whatever it is? Mate, I'm, I'm very conscious of the time and you've been very gracious with it. But uh, uh, if you've got a few more minutes, uh, a couple of, uh, uh, a few more questions. Uh, and one that I think, you know, if I'm to say that it, is a principal 
thread of your book, uh, it's probably going to be an understatement. And you've already alluded to this as well in a previous comment, and that is the cost of service on families. Uh, and if I may use their names, because I, I feel like I know them because I've now read your book, you know, your wife, Danielle, daughter, uh, Georgia, and your son, Henry, you make that point so clear in the book and so vivid that, you know, I get goosebumps now about the price ultimately you've paid uh, particularly you make the point with your son, Henry, and I think one of the things that really stood out was that you've missed the first nine of his 12 birthdays. Can you talk about that? Because that's, I think, I agree, that's something that we don't necessarily discuss, and that's the price families pay of service in particular, but perhaps in units like yours going to war so frequently. Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's the unwritten law rule principle of service i think in the military full stop and and to that end in all service or uh, or frontline you know uh, emergency services etc and that is that you you sacrifice your uh, family and you sacrifice your uh, wonderful life as i like to call it in a song i wrote recently uh, that it goes without saying you don't have any um, choice in that matter. Um, when the phone rings for a fire officer, they've got to go. It doesn't matter what's going on. Um, when, it, when the phone rings for a, for a soldier, the similar thing uh, happens. And they go willingly too for the, for, for the most part. So it's, it's a fact. I don't think we should be trying to, we should be, t- I don't think it's that helpful to talk about work-life balance in these contexts. We need to have another, another, another way around that. And I think one of the things we are much better at, or the unit is much better at than it used to be, is in engaging with families and children on an individual level. Uh, a lot of the Defence Force, as they do, because it's mass numbers, they have a kind of one-size-fits-all approach. And, for example, my wife never really engaged too much with uh, DCO or any of the support. She didn't need it. She was full-time mum, full-time work, but she would have liked to be more connected into certain parts of the network. So we, we impacted that and made things a lot better. You know... There's a high attrition rate in the military or in the SAS, and I, I can't speak more broadly for the for the uh, for the military, but I'm sure there's a lot of additional pressures there around deployments and time away. So marriages are really under stress, and and a lot of them break. And it's not just the deployments. I think that children and partners can reconcile the time away with you know a sense of pride, a sense of per- shared purpose. What, what can be draining, and it certainly was for us and, and very frustrating, I think I'll touch on it in the book as well, is we would come home from deployments and then we'd go and do uh, promotion courses. And honestly, we need to do those courses, but they were quite arbitrary at times, so they were frustrating. Uh, we would do tours to share information, whether it's on tactics and techniques or whether it's on strategic lessons learned, and we would have to participate in exercises. So we were spending, you know, at, at, at its worst, six months on ops a year and maybe three to four months of the year away whilst in Australia or overseas. So that, that really put a strain in our circumstances. Again, I think we're more cognizant of that now. And I think the ADF and our, our unit in particular became better at individualising how we treat families and work with families. Um, some families need lots of support and attention. A woman posted to Perth with a family all in North Queensland, for example. Other people have their support networks in Perth and don't need as much. So there's there's nuance in that. 
But I was very lucky, Maz, to finish up on that point. I, I was I just uh, incredibly lucky I, I, to have a wife uh, like Danielle uh, to meet her in a pub in, in 1991. And my kids have long suffered me and uh, they're wonderful and they've, uh, yeah, they've had, their lives have been impacted and still we see the, the remnants of that. But I'm glad to say we've made it through. And uh, I had an exhibition for the Bats at the Shrine of Remembrance a, a couple of years ago. And right at the entrance, uh, the statement I stand by says, uh, said, you know, it's not my body, mind or soul that I sacrificed in my career. Uh, it was my family. And I think uh, that's just a truth that I would ask all people coming into defence, especially those who are probably going to spend a lot of time away, Navy, frontline soldiers, that you give that the strategic consideration that, that it needs, that it, that it demands, and have a think about how you're going to deal with that. And there's, some, there's a woman by the name of Melanie Freeman who uh, has done a lot of work in this space. She's based in Perth. She works with the regiment um, and she's got a lot of good things to say. We hope to have her on a podcast with the MCTI. She's got a lot of good things to say and done a ton of research in this space about how we can prepare, sustain and then recover from deployments as family units uh, and as communities. So I think we'll get better at that as well. Yeah, no, really good point. I think it's important that, the you know, the rest of the community not involved with the military understands those pressures because it is ultimately you know it's the nation that's sending our soldiers forth uh, and it is the families that are remaining behind that are paying the price we need the whole community to understand that and also embrace the challenge of helping those who are left behind alone uh, so I think that's a that's a really important point and perhaps even for our politicians who are sending soldiers to war to ultimately really deeply understand the cost, not only on the soldiers, but on the broader community as well. I think it's a really important point. Yeah, I think if there's any politicians listening, Maz, or anyone of uh, who's kind of charged emotionally to do it or motivated to do it, I, I'd like to see a, a medal released for 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 partners. You know, they they there was an informal one released for kids, and which I thought was a, a lovely idea. But my you know. My wife has served this nation uh, every little, every bit as much as, as I have, and um, and and she says to me, we, "I don't like wearing medals, right? I'm not. I I, I kind of I don't know why, but uh, I wear them when I march with my father, but I, I don't wear them to events and things, and I, I don't know whether I'm being a dickhead or not. But she always makes me wear them to certain things where she goes because she said, "Look, I I'm proud of them, and and I kind of share them with you." And I've always thought, well, you know, I think um, she probably deserves one every bit as much as I do and um, and many. So uh, I, I just, I love her. She's, oh, I'm just so lucky. And um, and to, my message to most people is, is make it work, find a way. Yeah. Good on you, mate. I think, well, well firstly, for publicly, you know, disclosing your, your appreciation, I think that's very humble uh, of you. Uh, but also the idea of the spouse medal, I think that's a brilliant idea, mate. And yeah, if, if in fact there are any pollies listening, uh, there'll be uh, certainly something you can uh, earn some cred uh, with uh, men and women in the forces. Mate, I've, I, I'm, again, I, I keep saying, but there's just so many points. Uh, if you don't mind, we'll pivot on something that's a little bit more lighthearted and something that, uh, again, is a is an intimate part of you, uh, and that's cricket. Yeah. Which, you know, the book is about cricket. It's a fantastic way to tell a story through your 11 bats. Why was cricket so important, both to you uh, individually, uh, but also to those you've played with on operations? Uh, look, cricket's in my blood 
I grew up with uh, two brothers, Robert and Paul, and my father, Greg, and my mum on occasions, although she just took pleasure in watching us having a good time. But we played cricket everywhere. We, we backyards, streets, we played in the backseat of the car, we played on the kitchen tables, we in Nerf balls and bats in the lounge rooms at night. It was We were pretty crazy for it, so it was always there. But I guess, you know, I was only talking about this the other night with a friend, the, the very... The very first bat happened by chance. And for those who don't know much about the bats, the bullet, the headline is it was my habit to take a bat on each deployment that I went on and we used it. And then I had the men and women sign the bat at the end, as you do. And now I've got that collection of um, collection of cricket bats, which I think are a unique artefact. I think they, they kind of symbolise Australia's commitment for the 20, last 20 years. And as we're in the 20th year and wrapping up in Afghanistan, I hope to spread the word a lot more about them. But the cricket... You know, in, in those early deployments, cricket was just a release, a bit of fun. You know, I remember the first games of cricket we had in Asadabad were in a compound that was getting rocketed and, and shot at most nights. You know, we'd, we'd kind of play a game of cricket and then there'd be a rocket fired and then it was you grab your gun and go up on the wall and shoot a few off into the cornfields and whatnot around you. And it was all a bit kind of, you know, passe after a while. But we would be playing cricket uh, on those e- those afternoons, often before you know, that, that, that skirmish, I would call it, would, would occur. And I wonder the enemy are creeping into position through the cornfields or through the maze and through along the rivers and up on the high grounds. And they must have been able to hear us playing, you know, and hear the Taliban were trying to squash joy and cricket and music and everything out. That was their whole modus, you know, that was a whole purpose. And here we are, Huzzah! you know, appealing and, and, and sledging each other and having you know, uproarious laughter uh, and I always felt like we had one over them. You know, we, we were winning just by playing the game of cricket and then hearing us. Must, I hope it frustrated them, you know. And I didn't really think much of it. It was just something that we did. We played cricket and I'd always, I'm, I'm renowned in, in, in the regiment for, for, for cricket exploits and playing cricket and a, and a, and a, and a bit of an embuggerance at times, I reckon, about playing cricket. But it just grew out of that. And the next uh, trip, Iraq, uh, there were no cricket bats there, so I made one out of a bit of 4B2 and a, and a pen knife, a whittled one. Um, that's in the collection as well. And it wasn't probably till you know, the third or fourth bat that I started to realise that these things, the therapeutic impact that it actually had more than just the obvious sense of humour, a bit of humour and, and um, you know, rest and respite. In 2005, we were sitting around the bee huts, massive explosion from Taron Couch, suicide bomber had walked into a dogfight and and cracked off or detonated, uh, killing and wounding dozens of, of mostly men and boys. Our small surgical facility was soon overwhelmed, dozens, as I said, of dead and dying people. And I was uh, in charge of looking after the, the, the triage of the people who weren't going to make it, you know, the, the, the dying people that we couldn't, we couldn't save because we didn't have the resources. And you can imagine the carnage all day, uh, all of us, helping the, the, the lone doctor and a couple of nurses to treat all these horrific injuries and, and, and bagging people, et cetera, and a terrible scene. And at the end of the day, we're all sitting around the bee huts and uh, it was a low mood, it's fair to say. It was quite depressing and everybody was completely emotionally spent, fatigued, physically. And someone grabbed a bat and a ball and walked out and we were having a bit of a hit up and a muck around. And then it was almost like the zombies wandering across to what, what was uh, later to be our, our, our helicopter landing pad. And you could see these kind of, I suppose, hunched, depressed figures 
starting to unwind. I grabbed my camera. It was so obvious to me. I grabbed my camera and started taking photos. And then there was an appeal and then there was a there was a sledge and then there was a laugh and then there was a wicket taken and you know, more sledging and just watching them come back to life after such a tragic day. And it was then that it really grabbed me. These, this cricket is more, it's deep. There's a deeper thing happening here than just light relief or novelty. And, and it's actually, I, I'm fascinated by novelty now. It's something I kind of, I, I get distracted with early in the morning and before long it's two o'clock in the afternoon. And the therapeutic, yeah, but we also, we also used it to gain intelligence, to build rapport, to set up, to layer security. You know, you get play kids, play street cricket with the street urgents in Kabul. Uh, they know everyone. They know everything, who's coming, who's going, and you can build rapport with a bunch of street urchins, a uh, bit of cricket, and they uh, they, they become you. pretty handy. Yeah, pretty handy aid local agents. You know, so the cricket, it, 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 I could go on for hours, obviously, but it's uh, it's just so much more to it than um, than uh, than the game itself. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I'd almost say it's also the the idea of sport, right? Sport in itself, uh, and and here I just draw on our own experiences, which we touched on. Uh, before the recording most of my audience were familiar but my partner and I opened the first CrossFit gym in Bosnia with a vision to build a community and build bridges between those who otherwise divided and by the end of uh, our time there the two years that we were there we had nine flags of foreign nations that were represented in the gym membership we had you know the four Bosnian ethnicities uh, all kind of uh, training together completely I mean the, the uh, ethnicity and, and politics was never really discussed uh, but as a, as, as a unit, as an organization, we were able to then do charity work for kids with cancer, kids with autism, uh, you know, do a blood drive, which was probably the most symbolic, uh, where we had, you know, a couple of different coaches of different ethnicities lying next to each other, you know, all bleeding red. This was the powerful symbology and sport, you know, uh, and there's plenty of research to, to, to support this. Sport does have the ability to do that, to kind of bring down walls and I think your book speaks to that really beautifully particularly with the uh, and, and I think your your gratitude for them with the Nepalese uh, Gurkhas who you first I think got exposed to in Iraq and then later on in, in Afghanistan the cricket was the principal vehicle with which through which you built relationships and trust and friendship with the with these guys and of course then a, a really deep understanding of both of their circumstances uh, but also how you as an individual Australian soldier can perhaps help them uh, in their circumstances. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's a really, really powerful insight. Yes, yeah, certainly in Iraq, we played a bit of cricket with, uh, with the Gurkhas who were, you know, often the front line, very first line of, uh, of, of security. So a lot of the war, a lot of the, the hurt in terms of suicide bombers, etc., standing alongside local security forces. In one instance, uh, during that deployment, a rocket landed in their 11B11 tent city, essentially, is where, what they were staying in, which is, which is you know, a bit of a disgrace, really. Uh, we're all in these sandbagged and concrete bunkers, uh, sleeping quite comfortably and um, generally high survivability, but they were, they were in tents uh, in a car park. And just goes to show you the, the, the depths, I thought, and I use the word depths cynically, for some of the contracting companies who are just taking large volumes of dosh and paying people stuff all as a disgrace, really. 
And they, in one instance, they, I think they lost uh, maybe half a dozen or a dozen of their colleagues in a direct strike from a rocket, burnt down the tent city. And so we had them come to the compound uh, and they were staying in the in the various booths and, and, and a couple of uh, accommodation blocks around us until they we found them other accommodation. We'd, we'd written up reports already saying that this is not good enough, we should be looking after them. And they come, we played cricket, and of course they were devastated and lost a lot, all of their, you know, a lot of their close friends. Then they were understaffed, um, so they were doing double pick. So it was a horrendous time for them. And cricket was a way to play cricket with them and see the smiles on their faces was just obviously just super powerful. You know, it encouraged touching and hugging and those types of things. Uh, you know, sharing physical contact connection as well as you know, emotional and psychological connection with them. And then I worked again with them in, in Kabul. I talk about them and built up such a, a fond relationship with them there. And we, we played cricket and smoked cigarettes out the front together. And that wasn't just me. You know, it's not, this isn't all about Harry. This is Australian forces. And we, I, I, I suppose towards the end of the war, I was getting pretty, I suppose, um, cynical is not the word I'm not a cynical person but I don't think but I I was getting a little sick and tired of of seeing people doing it that tough and they were getting paid I don't know what it was 50 bucks a month or something something terrible but they're probably probably getting a two thousand dollars a month or more for for um for the payment in the contracts and we had a pay rise for them we organized and and, uh, niggled and nudged for a pay rise through DFAT and, and the contracting groups which they got and you know, so they were they were super happy with that. And uh, such was we were driven to do that. Such was our, our feeling and rapport that we had with those with the guards. Um, I could go on, but um, I'd start to sound a bit bitter about how they were treated. But I think again, this is this is part of the ecosystem of post conflict. And again, we touched on this uh, earlier. I mean, I, I went to Iraq as a contractor, and I saw those ve- and and yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. But sorry, mate, you were about to say something else. I was just going to say cricket, uh, you're def- dead right about sport and there is a lot of research and there's uh, some great PhDs have been written about the power of sport and bridging uh, as a diplomatic tool, as a non-violent diplomatic tool in, in warfare and in kind of Cold War environments as well and examples of where it has had massive impact at a diplomatic level. But I always, I suppose I defend, you always defend your own home turf, but I cricket is just a, it's a different other type of game that kind of separates from from football and and I suppose gymnasiums etc. It's it and the reason I say this is it, it's in its inclusivity. It it spans skill level. It spans gender, ethnicity, religion, everything. You don't have to even know what cricket is to turn up and get a get a game. And it's inherent in its informal rules that all of us, I hope, understand about cricket. And that is that you can't get out first ball. Everybody gets a bat and a bowl. Uh, Everybody has to field before you get a bat and a bowl. You can be out one hand, one bounce. So (laughs) there's this inclusivity in an informal game of cricket. And you can play it with anything. You can play it with a stick and a piece of paper. And I've seen it played equally as as, as uh, passionately in all spheres. So I love footy too. I love Aussie rules and I love soccer. But it doesn't have the same. It, it takes a bigger field. It's a bit more competitive. It's, uh, it's you kick around a ball's good, but it, it, you know 
I made I, I remember seeing a, a number of young women in Afghanistan kind of intrigued with what was going on and we threw them the ball and they they got involved and they were equally uh enjoyed the experience as uh, as a and same in Timor where cricket they go what the hell is that we had some of our best games of uh, cricket and Timor with people who've never seen cricket ever yeah I mean as, a, as an immigrant to Australia I must admit that was uh, my first reaction but uh, and the only cricket I've played is uh, the one you described where the rules are kind of made made up on the spot because yeah. hey that's the, that's the only uh, skill I was bringing to the, to the table yeah. Base, baseball's similar so it's, it's a stick and ball game isn't yeah. it you know, yeah exactly uh, Harry I, I, I'm being rather selfish here mate I'm conscious have you got a few more minutes have you got a is there a I hard have, stop mate, I, yeah. yeah no I have actually I was just going to be on the uh, email so I'm happy to chat mate because there's uh, there's one other area that I uh, and I think it's the it's the third area that you talk about in your book uh, about the three things uh, when you were blown up when you lost a close mate uh, and again that's an that's that's a thread that's a that's a key thread that resonates throughout uh, the book about your uh, close mate Sean McCarthy who was lost uh, in an IED uh, when you were wounded and you described the moment where you were flying in the air and there were three things that flashed up in front of your mind and that's your books you know in your backpack uh, your family cricket touched on the latter two but the Last one we haven't perhaps is, uh, is is psychology, and I'd be keen to find out. As you said at the start, psychology was always something you were going to do. Architecture psychology, which I've never heard of, but you know this is before joining the army, uh, and of course after leaving, you then went and became a registered psychologist. Why psychology? Why, why do you think life has drawn you to it? it isn't it the most fascinating subject of all? Uh, I I think. Yeah, it's uh, human. Humans are the most complex, frustrating, beautiful, ugly organisms, things, whatever we are of all. And I, I, I think we're all infatuated, and we're all, or all intrigued. And I think we're all psychologists. You know, we all have our uh, um, perception and observations of the world. And uh, I guess uh, I just decided to that that was what an interest of mine that I wanted to take much deeper and also wanted to be able to have some kind of authoritative, and I don't mean in terms of me uh, being an authority, I mean that I wanted to to uh, reach into the, 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 as close to the, the truth as I could and I thought that academia was the place where I'd get the best evidence and support research um, in terms of where the the, I won't say single point of truth, but where the multiple points of truth are. And so that was that was kind of behind me. I've always been interested in in the evidence. Uh, uh, so that was, I was drawn to that. But it's certainly the most interesting topic of all psychology and, and its and its forefather or, or mother uh, philosophy. So they, the two are, are very closely aligned for mine. I just want to, just going back to Sean's um yeah, whenever I hear Sean's name, I always think of Dave and Mary, uh, his, his parents uh, and family, and um, uh, I just want to acknowledge them uh, in, uh, in my narrative here. Uh, but uh, I think when, when I was returned wounded in, uh, in action in 2008, it was then that the psychology journey that I was on, the, the study journey that I was on, became uh, even more meaningful and more powerful and more deeper implicit motivation for me 
and really inspired me. I was already set on a journey to, to be a psychologist, hopefully at that stage, but that was something I spent a lot of time in the dark, laying in bed with you know, intravenous drugs in me and, uh, and contemplating that that was my way out of the hole or part of the solution. If I lost my leg, uh, which was still under review at that stage, and I couldn't be an operator anymore. And I knew that I had a second identity or at least something to cling to if I was to separate. And that's where this third, this notion of the third thing comes from. Maz, or the third things on the mantelpiece. I now know that, you know, that education is a way, but it's a super powerful way. And again, we've said it a few times now and you're in danger of saying it too much, but there's great evidence and great research behind life outcomes, mental health outcomes, physical outcomes, social outcomes, moral outcomes for people who pursue education is what I often say. That doesn't mean everyone should run off to do a master's or an MBA or anything. It might be as simple as finishing year 12 because you didn't. A a huge barrier to young men, I, I believe, and I think we should allow all humans to go back and finish year 12 if they choose to for free. Or it might be a small business or learning to be a carpenter or, or I've got a, a friend uh, who just set up a chain of hairdressing salons so they did small business. But this is this lifelong pursuit of education is, is, uh, is I think, a massive part of the solution to veteran ills, if you will, that blanket term of veteran issues. Yeah, nurturing intellectual curiosity. I mean, I, I, I published an article recently uh, on The Forge about that very point uh, because I was, uh, after coming back to defence, I was... To be frank, I was somewhat disappointed that we still hadn't bridged that idea that education is a is is a fan, fantastic way to help people outside of defence, uh, but also inside of defence. Uh, and also, in in my paper, I was arguing for defence funding any type of vocational training. You know, whatever someone wants to do, whether it's they could it could be a cooking class, it doesn't matter because it's you know how, what what is creativity? Creativity is uh, you know is the merging of different ideas to come up with you know. Two disparate concepts, arguably, into something completely new, uh, and to be agile in this in the future of war, we need creativity, uh, and that might come from you know, say, an operator uh, who's also taking a cooking class, uh, and you know, mm. a, a spark might occur somewhere, but also it gives Definitely. them a, another outlet. You know, it, it removes us from this blinkered view of the world through the lens of army defense, which is, uh, which is arguably quite dangerous. So I, I wholeheartedly agree, Matt. I think that's a, and is that the reason that you started the Wanderers Education Program? Yeah, definitely. I think in the future, what we'll see to kind of just keep riffing on the point you just made, it, I think in the future, and I'm certainly turning my mind to this, I, I, I think mental health will be rebadged as brain health. And education is about brain health, I, 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 I'm increasingly immovable on that, on that point. And I, you know, I think it's more helpful language than mental health. So if, if, if education, learning, curiosity, uh, creativity, novelty, attention, focus, perception, et cetera, the list goes on of cognitive phenomena that we uh, you know, yet to understand, but we have somewhat explained or can somewhat, under, somewhat, somewhat um, understand. All of these things play into brain health and good brain health is it's, you know, causal in life outcomes and, and, and longevity and, and all the rest of it. So education is key. And yes, it was. The, 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 my journey on education 
Yeah, I wrote a paper back in I think like 2007. It kind of got a little punched through the noise a little, and that was you know, calling for a USGI bill. I knew back then that there was a lot of operators in the regiment who, um, and I, again, I wrote this kind of disruptive paper on it, uh, who were studying in the closet. Because if you were studying, it was seen as a bit of a bloody, you know, it was soft. Bloody, what are you studying for? That's for bloody academics. We want war fighters. And, and so, and of course we do, but it does, doesn't mean we can't have smart war fighters. I even had, dare I say, a, a few officers saying we don't need smart soldiers. We just need soldiers to, to, to learn to shoot guns and, what, and whatnot. So I had a bit of a bee in my bonnet. And in 2008, I had a lot of time to think about it, mate. And I thought, well, how can, how can I impact how can I stop talking about it and writing about it and actually do something about it? And I, and that's a message I hope brings through to a few people in the social media at the moment who are doing a lot of talking. And so I, I in short, very briefly, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, envisaged the, the Wanderers Education Program, which is an education program that recognises that transition is too late and that transition could come now or in the next seconds. Uh, and that is that we need to start educating uh, or, or treating um, our soldiers and you know, our defence members from the moment they arrive, in the, in, for tra- preparing them for transition from the moment they join. And so I wanted to establish something where those who were studying in the closet could come out and also give opportunities for those who wanted to study while they were in service. And so the end state now is... Yeah, it's gone gangbusters, mate. And I hope I'm I'm hoping to take this to uh, the Minister for Veterans Affairs very soon. I've spoken to him about it. We've proven the concept and what we went out and raised a whole bunch of money from corporates. We've poured it inside defence, which I don't think's been done before. And it's spent inside the regiment. It's married uh, managed by the unit. It's managed by soldiers who are serving. The fund is looked after and invested. It's all above board. And we've got, I think we're putting our 70th person into a scholarship soon. Everything from year 12 to carpentry to MBAs, they're all punching way above their weight as you would expect. And that's my experience with soldiers and defence members full stop, whether they've done year 12 or have already masters qualified. And you know what, mate? No, no surprises. They transition into a network that's already long been established during their career. They, all of the stif- civilian stuff is demystified. And here's the kicker for me, because it was the biggest criticism I had from everyone, from generals down to privates about the whole thing, is they said that people will study and run. They'll get, they'll get a, a degree and, and bugger off. And it's added to retention. So on average, people uh, stay in defence for two years longer to finish their study and and uh, so it's just been a huge win and um, and as I said I don't have a great deal to do with it anymore it's all managed from our human performance or from the units I shouldn't say our from the units human performance manager and we don't have too much trouble raising money uh, obviously if you wanted to scale this it would take uh, some money but this is a preventative measure and there's not enough of those in the whole veteran uh, milieu at the moment. And I hope the Royal Commission, one of the things that the Royal Commission does is take a deep dive into preventative initiatives. And this, this, this is it. And I, whilst I've completely changed my mind on the GI Bill, uh, the GI Bill concept is good for the US, but it's hugely limited and targets the wrong audience here in Australia. But I think we could come up with something similar, some 
digger le legislation or defence education legislation that allows to people to study what they want, when they want, on what topic they want and, and whenever they want, uh, self-directed and identity-improving, amplifying um, solution to, to transition issues. Ambulance at the top of the cliff, not, not at the bottom of the cliff like everything is at the moment. Uh, let's get the ambulance to the top of the cliff. That's so spot on, mate. I mean, that resonates so closely with me as someone who's a perpetual learner in some sense. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, that, you know, there are so many points we could tease out from there. The one that stands out to me the most is, again, the connection between army units and the greater community. You said you, you received invest, investment from corporates. I think there's a recognition that we, and, and there's a bridge that we need to build with the broader community about the experience of soldiering and the hardships of soldiering and also the value defense people bring. And I think there is, there is, there's quite a wave of that happening now, you know, certainly the kind of the transition piece about employment and, you know, employer veteran because they're X, Y, Z. And I agree, this is all fantastic, but I couldn't agree more with your point about this needs to start from recruitment, you know, until ultimately we, uh, we leave the defense force. One of, one of the, you, you touched on it before and on a couple of points here, the, you know, the veteran issue with suicide and, and mental health uh, issues. So, I, I hope you accept of taking a very deep dive into those figures and their nuance. And I don't necessarily agree that that we should be using terminology that blankets all veterans with mental health risks, et cetera. I think that, that we need to dull that language a little because it's actually unhelpful to the people we need to um, help the most. However, one thing that comes out of the statistics on suicide and mental health prevalence in veterans is that it's large, that a, a, a significant portion of those individuals have only been in the military a short time. Now they, and, and probably uh, it's, it's, uh, it's weighted more heavily in people who have only served a, a number of years and getting out for physiological injury or being moved on. And it's kind of obvious you know, to, to us Again, this this approach to to putting the you know these preventative measures and giving them something else it, it recognizes that a that a soldier, sailor, airman, or woman's career can be over in a moment. It's a it, you know the military is a is a contact sport whether you're on, on operations or not. Uh, Kapuka is a contact sport. Um, people have come around uh, run and ground all the time there. You know exercises, parachuting, shooting, all of these, these are highly risk, risky adventures. So I think this, I think, and it's not just education, but I think that my, uh, my thoughts on it are, is that it's, that, that we need to start treating transition as part of your initial engagement, because your career can be over in a, in a, in a, in a moment. So I think that's a really important point to make. And also uh, would tend to address what, uh, is a highly sensitive time uh, people who have been discharged after only a short period of service, which seems to be, um, we need more data for sure, but seems to be a high uh, elevation of prevalence in those populations. Yeah, I, sp I spoke about this at length uh, with Pip Whelan uh, on, a, on a previous episode, who was the head of Psychor and now uh, heads up Open Arms Queensland. Uh, that very point, you know, it's the, the, the medical discharge in particular are the highest risk followed by those who've left and and like you said you know the the length of service actually there's a correlation between you know if it's a shorter period of time uh, the risk is somewhat higher 
there's no, like you said, there's no clear answer as to why, but there's certainly something to do with you know, the loss of tribe, loss of identity, you know, loss of uh, an identity that you had ultimately embraced uh, and that has now been taken away from you willingly or not. It's hard to adjust when you don't have, when your identity is so dependent on uniform. And I think, again, you, you, you know, I, I keep harping on about the, the points you make in the book because they are so strong. There's a, there was a quote, uh, was actually, sorry, I think this might have been in a podcast I listened to you, where you, uh, one of the main bits of advice you, ta- you, you give to other, uh, to young soldiers is have civilian friends, you know, is to then have a separate identity outside of the military, which is part of that building that resilience that the army or the military, whatever service you're in, you cannot allow that to be just, you know, all of that, just you. That's it. All, you know? all of who you are. Yeah, all the military is a part of who you are, but it's that's not all you are. And, yeah. and you know, kind of rounds back to the philosophy of how we think about how we think. And uh, so it's, it's, it's super powerful. You know, the Army's set for education. It, it's, it's the biggest provider of education in, in, the, in the nation. And we have two huge, or three if you want, but we have two huge universities that we should be channeling people who have just been discharged physically through doing short courses and reading them. I mean, you know, I think every everyone who reaches the rank of Lance Jack should be then going off to do intensive courses at ADFA. You know, it's not just for officers. It should be for all of us. Uh, it's our defence uh, academy, not. Uh, and I think, um, you know, we're missing a beat here. And there's, and I've found nothing. I've now put uh, kind of hundreds of of of, um, of defence members into universities, and every university I've approached or spoken to, the dozens I've been to, all of them go, "Welcome, yeah, bring them in. We want more. And if the government's going to pay, we'll have that as well. So I, there's no barriers anywhere. They're just, I think they're. The kind of 1800s technology in terms of hierarchical imagined barriers that um, yeah it goes back to the days of segregation when 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 um, there were places on the barracks where privates weren't allowed to go you know there were signs like on the beaches of South Africa you know privates or, or soldiers not welcome here I think let's get past that it's it's 2021. I agree, mate. That's that cultural. <laughs> you talk about cultural, right? That's a it's an organizational cultural shift that we need to make. And again, this is you know, the fact that you know it is overwhelmingly officers that have education funded. I think that's a that's a huge shortfall uh, shortfall on our side. And again, a point I made in 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 that previous article. Harry, uh, mate, I'm just conscious of the time. I could sit here and talk to you all day. Uh, I'm going to say at the outset, mate, you, you can expect a, an additional invite uh, from me to do an episode two. Uh, because we've barely scratched the surface, and uh, you know, while we covered some of the points that I had in my in my notes, I think there is uh, plenty more I could ask you. And uh, just from me to you, mate, uh, you, you keep using the word disruptor. I think you truly are a disruptor. You were a disruptor in the unit because you, as you self described yourself, you were uh, lightweight. I think you described yourself in the book. You know, you were uh, what eighty chip kilos. On my shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But then also <laughs> afterwards, you know, I think you 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 were a closet uh, uh, learner who then came out of the closet quite prominently. Uh, you know, that's a disruptive effect. You know, you became a psychologist, uh, which again, to try and really understand and echo the lessons you've learned, uh, you know, undoubtedly now in the uh, in, in your current employment, I'm sure you're doing the same thing. Uh, mate, thank you for your service. I think you've, uh, you truly are a, a, a legend uh, of the Australian Army. And I think uh, I echo many of the comments I've certainly seen about the book uh, on social media that you have, uh, you are not only telling uh, the story of SAS, Per se, but also of the hardships and the pain and the and and, and the sacrifices 
many of our soldiers make in the service of the nation. So, mate, I congratulate you. It's a fantastic read. And, of course, thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Max. Thank you for your service. And um, great podcast, mate, um, from Inside Defence. I think it's, uh, it's a great effort to achieve that and have it sanctioned, mate. So more power to you, and I hope it uh, kicks on big goals, mate. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you saying that. And uh, yeah, look out for that uh, invitation in your email, mate. It'll be, uh, it'll be definitely coming. Oh, mad for it. Mad for it, mate. See you, mate. See you, mate. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.